The next US Civil War, hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Um, as America's political and cultural divide gets deeper and perhaps even more violent, there are growing concerns about a civil war erupting. Um, but what exactly would that look like and where would it start? Well, one, one person who's been taking a very close look at that and talking to experts is David Wren. He's a featured correspondent for Insider. Uh, David, what have you found? What part of the United States are the experts telling you where would this civil war, if it happens, where would it start? Yeah, good to be with you. So I spent a considerable amount of time. There's no sort of database looking at where civil wars are, are most likely to start in the United States. That those factors do exist internationally and in developing countries. Um, and so some of the metrics that I looked at as I talked to experts is which groups, uh, which states had the most militias, uh, which which states had the most uh, instances of stop the steal protests, and uh, sort of uh, most uh, home to citizens who came, went to Washington. Washington on January 6th. And what I found uh, over and over again was that the overwhelming consensus is that th this could start uh, anywhere in the country because of our divided nature. But experts said states that had pretty sharp rural, rural urban divides uh, were likely candidates uh, for significant fighting. Um, you know, states that had large numbers of right-wing mil militia groups. Um, and so over and over again, kind of the, the consistent states that experts pointed to were states like Michigan, uh, places like upstate New York, uh, that's home to a lot of uh, oath keepers um, and members of the three percenter groups. Uh, and then also uh, uh, essentially Western uh, Eastern Oregon, which has a successful movement so far of 10 counties that want to succeed into uh, Idaho because their politics are very different than the more liberal western part of the state of Oregon. And so those are really the three most frequently uh, listed locations by experts and political scientists and domestic terrorism um, subject matter experts that I talked to as I looked for where the next civil war could start. As some of our audience knows, I went to the University of Michigan and I can do a test to the divide in terms of rural versus sort of more urban southeastern part of Michigan. Michigan also has something like 17 anti-government militias. It's got an international border. It's also been hit um, by globalization. What role does globalization have in all of this? Yeah, you know, I, I talked with um, several political scientists who are based in in Michigan, and they really talked about Michigan as the epicenter uh, of outsourcing. Um, you look at you look at the auto industry, you look at some of the, the the jobs that have been lost in that sector, and you know, I think globalization has has hit an industrial state like Michigan um, and even parts of Ohio and Indiana significantly harder than other states. You know, this is the Rust Belt, this is the manufacturing belt, and so I. I I think that globalization um, has played a role in sort of exacerbating, uh, you know, class tensions, tensions between Republicans and Democrats, between red and blue, and between uh, rural and urban. And you can really see that in, in Michigan. And in fact, in Michigan, you can also see that the political discourse has become so abrasive. I think it was not long ago when Ron Weiser, who was the state Republican chair, described the Democratic governor, attorney general, and secretary of state as witches to be burned at the stake. Um, now, he may say, look, I was just sort of kidding. This was just sort of a euphemism, but a lot of people take this seriously, right? Yeah, and not only that, um, but uh, the Republican representative Peter Meyer of Ron Weiser's own party, uh, when Ron Weiser was asked about how to deal with someone like Peter Meyer, who voted for Donald Trump's impeachment as a member of his own party, when he was asked about that, he suggested assassination um, as a way to politically 
quickly remove Meyer from office. Um, as we're talking, uh, David, uh, there's a trial going on, a federal trial in Grand Rapids, uh, looking at how to deal with a group of domestic terrorists who plotted kidnapping um, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So Michigan is a real home to this sort of um, you know, anti-government uh, activity. And it's a significant cause of concern, not only to, to, to Democrats, uh, but, but to also uh, public officials who investigate matters of domestic terrorism. And whether we're talking about Michigan or upstate New York, as you found, or Eastern Oregon, or is there a particular definition for what essentially constitutes a civil war in the world of political science? Yeah, in the world of political science, a civil war is is not necessarily like the blues versus the grays that we think of when we think of our our, civil, our first civil war that happened in, in the United States. It's really a particular number of enemy, enemy combatant deaths that happen in a, in a given period of time. Um, the, the actual definition is a thousand deaths in any given year. Um, and at different points in history over the last few years, you know, we've seen you know maybe. 50 50, 100 of those. And so we're, we're far from the actual definition of civil war. Uh, but as I talked with experts, they said that really, you know, the civil war would look much different than the first civil war that we that we would have. It wouldn't be so much state against state, but it would be, you know, neighbor against neighbor um, within states. Uh, the political geography is much more complex than it was during our first civil war. And with things like the Oklahoma City bombing, and by the way, Timothy McVeigh had some connections to the Michigan militia, would bombings be considered part of that sort of death toll that I suppose could add up to a civil war? Yeah, you know, I talked with Barbara Walter, um, who is a really popular political scientist right now from California, and she's looked at this closely and studies civil wars uh, professionally as part of her academic discipline. And in her book, uh, How Civil Wars Start, which came out earlier this year, she imagines the next civil war uh, unfolding as a series of bombings in mm -hmm. state capitals uh, around the country. Uh, I think in her version, they start in Wisconsin, uh, they happen in Michigan and out, out on the West Coast as well. But there are these sort of bombings that start to happen, and no one really knows who's uh, who's taking part in them. And then slowly, uh, you know, different militia groups take credit for that. And so it's really diffuse. The fighting is happening in a number of different states. Um, other groups, you know, Black Lives Matter matters, you know, sort of get involved as well. And it's really kind of a free for all that that happens both over social media and in real life too. And whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's uh, cultural issues. Um, there has also been this thought that uh, secession, which was a key part of the last civil war in the United States, could play another role uh, in the next one that, that comes. Explain how. Yeah, you know, secession is actually a more popular movement today in the United States than you, than you would think of. It played out in suburban Atlanta uh, with places like Buckhead looking at succeeding from succeeding from from Atlanta uh, specifically and being their own political unit. It's but then they were able to get the the demands that they wanted, and so different polities and political entities whether they're a city, a town, a state, um, are gaining power right now by threatening secession. You're seeing that happen uh, right now in Western Oregon, uh, where 10 counties, as I mentioned, um, have signed on to a non-binding resolution, say that they saying that they want to secede because the the politics uh, in Oregon's capital and on its west coast are different than the politics they share in, in the rural part of the state. So it's yet to be seen whether they'll get some of the demands that they want, such as lower taxes, um, the legalization of marijuana is being pushed on them and they don't want that to happen.
happen. We don't know yet whether they're um, going to see secession, but you're you're seeing secession movements and bills in places like Texas, but even New Hampshire. Just a few weeks ago, the New Hampshire legislature uh, voted on a motion to secede, uh, and and New Hampshire is by no means a conservative state. Uh, you you see some rural urban divide there, and so it's really kind of fascinating how much in 2022 we're hearing about secession movements really all across the country uh, right now. You mentioned at the start of this um, that uh, some states, certain parts of the country contributed to January 6th to the insurrection at the US Capitol. There is this argument that's been made uh, since then that in fact, those were the first shots or the first uh, first violence of a civil war. What do you make of that argument? You know, when I talk to political scientists and domestic terrorism units, uh, people with uh, who are in counterintelligence who really have no partisan leaning in in this in, the, in this uh, January 6 investigation, they 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 did say that those were sort of the first shots of of a civil war, of a new strain of of civil strife in the United States. But they also point to the fact that most of these people have been prosecuted and held accountable for their actions. And they say that that's a success. Even though that that happened, um, you know, that plot was sort of uh, in some ways uh, it was carried out, but they're they're paying for the consequences right now. And they think that that will have a deterrence um, issue. You look at what's happening in Michigan with the plot to kidnap uh, Governor Whitmer, that was foiled by the FBI. And so some people that I talked to push, pushed back on this idea that we are certainly without recourse headed to a second civil war. Uh, they say that intelligence on uh, terrorism domestic specifically has been increased and that the Biden administration is doing a good job. You know, the Biden administration last year introduced our, the first um, counterinsurgency strategy for domestic ter- terrorism. And they have a special unit of the Department of Justice that's investigating and prosecuting these types of crimes. And so they would point to that as evidence that, that actually we have this issue under control, even as it as it increases. And that regards, of course, federal law enforcement, but there is, does seem to be concern in a lot of places about around the United States about local law enforcement, and in particular sympathies that local law enforcement might have for secession groups or racist groups or militia groups. Um, where does that come to play in all of this? Yeah, you know, Pro uh, ProPublica, the journalistic organization that's a nonprofit newsroom, had a really blockbuster report last year that came out identifying a number of state senators, state representatives, and county sheriffs that are connected to uh, militia groups like the three percenters, uh, like um, the Oath Keepers. And they sort of outed a lot of people connected to that organization. Uh, And um, in my report, I looked at upstate New York and how county sheriffs there um, proudly display symbols of uh, associated with the Oath Keepers, with the three percenters. Um, And not only that, but they're receiving awards from these groups, uh, the Constitutional Sheriffs Association, and they're they're proud to affiliate with them. Um, um, now, of course, they denied that the flags that they've displayed in their offices uh, are affiliated with three percenters. Um, but it's it's fascinating to see just how enmeshed some of our local officials across the United, United States are with some of these militia groups. And will certainly be interesting if in fact the bombings do begin and there is a sort of violence, what will some of these local law enforcement do? Will they uphold their oath to the constitution and actually crack down on people who are breaking the law or well, they suddenly say, you know what, maybe I support these groups and I'm gonna support their efforts instead. But it's fascinating stuff. And Adam, great work in all this. Adam Wren, he's a features correspondent for Insider. Thanks for joining us, Adam, we appreciate it. Great to be with you, David. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Virtual kidnappings. Hello, everybody, welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. So the FBI says it is stumped by what seems to be some sort of scam. It involves 
a phone call to a parent, a um, screaming child, and then a demand for ransom. And what has happened is that um, a lot of people have thought that this is actually a real thing. And here to talk about it is David Kushner. He is a contributor for Insider who has written a lot about this uh, and has unfortunately some personal experience with um, with kidnapping. Uh, David, uh, thanks for being with us. Sure, thanks for having me. So let's start with, uh, is it right, fair to describe it as sort of a scam that these are people who are trying to, to play on parents' worst fears? Totally, it's a, it's, a, it's a scam and it's shocking how many people are getting conned. Um, because the first thing, once, once you hear about this, I think you think you'd never fall for it, but people are falling for it all the time. And does part of that have to do with sort of the mental state that if you hear a child crying and it's maybe sort of muffled and you can't really tell, you immediately think, God, is that, is that my kid? And then they try to, and they essentially have you. Is, is that part of what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're basically, um, you know, it, they're, they're cold calling potential victims and a lot of people hang up, but you only need one. And that one person they get often, they're triggering that fight or flight. So there's just hearing that voice, hearing someone say daddy, mommy, whatever it is, can trigger people into that state where then they just panic and start to become vulnerable. And one of the reasons that I think some people are vulnerable and, and may panic is because this is this is a real thing that happens. Kids do get kidnapped. And unfortunately, I was, I was sorry to read that when you were four years old, your 11 year old brother was kidnapped and, and murdered. So this, this thing sort of really exists. Is that what sort of drew you towards this in terms of as a story? I mean, this is the kind of thing that I cover um, regularly anyway, technology and, and, and crime and that sort of thing. So it's in my wheelhouse, but certainly when I heard about this, actually heard it happen to some people I knew personally, it made me reflect on my own experience and, and kind of how really insidious this, this scam is. And by personally, I guess a, a community in New Jersey, you knew the family. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you learned about them and how this family sort of fell into this and, and how they dealt with it. Yeah, I mean, these were just people, you know, uh, the, 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 the father worked at a software company and it's in the middle of the day and he gets a phone call and he hears the girl crying saying, daddy, help me. Next thing you know, there's a man on the phone saying, we have your daughter um, and you need to give us ransom money. And he's told not to answer any phone calls, communicate with anyone, answer any texts. So he basically is off thinking that she's been taken. And then his wife and, and daughter who, who the wife finds out is safe are now trying then have to try to stop him because they don't know where he's going and what he may be a victim of himself. And he eventually, what he passes a note to uh, to somebody who and sort of is able to get some help to stop this. Well, kind of the opposite actually, because what happened was is that um, you know he's not answering any phone calls or responding to texts, so there was no way to really let him know that the daughter's okay. Um, and so what they had to do was really just they had to track him using the um, GPS, you know, software within the phone, and then actually send uh, police there to let him know that this is not real. Um, now this is this is done again without. I mean, everybody's worried about technology that could somehow you know take uh, our image, our picture, and sort of put it into a video or a photograph. And and there's the equipment is sort of existing now to sort of replicate people's voice, and yet. That's not in, that's not what's involved here yet. They haven't gotten to the point of actually using deep fakes of audio of your kids. Yeah, I and mean, honestly, that's what surprised me most because when I heard about this, the rumor around my town was 
that there this had been a kind of a de- audio deep fake where someone had taken audio from the girls uh, you know social media accounts. In fact, it's they're not that sophisticated. Um, these are just canned recordings of crying um, you know teenagers or kids. And um, and and you know and then there's a twist that that's kind of revealed in the story as to where these calls are coming from, and then you, it, it starts to make sense. You want to give us the you want to give us the twist? <laughs> <laughs> well, ultimately, you know, this was going on for quite a while, and it would, the the FBI really were were not able to figure out what's going on. Ultimately, found that there was this kingpin behind this, and that um, that oh, these calls were coming out of prisons in Mexico. And that, um, you know, that basically the scam is that there are burner phones distributed to prisons in Mexico. Somebody on the outside is running this operation. People on the inside don't care that much. And um, so, as the FBI said to me, you know, what are we going to do? We can't put these people in jail because they already are in jail. And this, apparently, according to, to your reporting, this, this sort of really took off what in 2015 in yeah. Beverly Hills. Why a place like Beverly Hills, California? Because there's money. And um, so they basically just thought of Beverly Hills, even though maybe it's not the wealthiest zip code in the country, certainly up there. And so that's why they um, targeted um, that area. And then they moved on to um, a wealthy suburb outside of Houston. And they basically they blanket an area code with, you know, with all these calls. Um, right. And they just need one to sort of pick up and play and then then they're in. And then they have local people who are working. Um, and who can go actually pick up money that's dropped at certain locations. So the way that FBI actually figured out who was behind this was because they had surveillance footage outside of a school in Texas where they saw a woman coming to the drop spot and collecting the money and they were able to get her plate. And then that led back to the one behind this. And do law enforcement say there are any real clear distinguishing characteristics between something that is a scam that is a virtual kidnapping and the real thing? Um, you know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, what what they're saying here is that, you know, it, it's not hard to poke holes in these calls. Like if you once you hear that voice, you're really not going to hear it again. You know, um, so uh, you know, probably in the real thing, it's it's not going to be that can. But again, I think. This idea is that once you've been triggered, you're not going to know the difference. And and what do law enforcement, what do the experts say you should do if if you happen to be one of those unfortunate people that gets the call? And let's just assume you don't know whether it's the real thing or whether it's one of these you know scams. Yeah. What do police and law enforcement suggest that a that a parent you know parent should do? Yeah. Um. They 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 have three words, which is just hang up. Um, because you know, if it's real, um, they think that'll just because with these these people, if you hang up, they're they're likely to just go on to the next person. So um, you know, that's easier said than done for people who have been kind of um, galvanized like this. But that's why you know they the the FBI agreed to talk with me, and they're trying to get the message out to people. And I guess the theory is that if it's you know if it's the real thing, God forbid, then they're going to try again to contact you because they'll think, oh, they don't believe they think this is a scam. Yeah. We're going to we're going we're gonna to send them another message or right. or communicate with them in another another way. Yeah. This family in in New Jersey, um, what's been sort of the 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 lasting impact on them? Have they figured out uh, was their particular case tied to this Mexican drug cartel uh, jail or? Right. Yeah. They they haven't figured out exactly who the specific person is behind it. But yes, I mean, these are coming out of out of these prisons in Mexico and, and 
Um, and that was it was a call, the call ID, which they figured it out was coming from Mexico. Um, in terms of the family, it's a lasting trauma. You know, um, there's still trauma and um, there's also shame in the sense of how how could I fall for this? You know, so so that's the thing is that, you know, they go through these emotions, even though it's not really happening. And then they have to deal with the fact that they were duped into it to begin with. You know, I, I, I can relate, except that maybe necessarily the shame. I mean, as a parent of two kids, uh, an eight year old oh. and, and a five year old, I mean, even if, you know, it's school hours and you get the call, I mean, I can I can envision right. and my worst fear how somebody might snatch a child off of a school playground or grab them from a street. I mean, so it's, I think as a parent, your mind almost sort of automatically goes there. Right. And I think that, you know, I think every parent probably unfortunately has had one moment where they can't find the kid at the playground or whatever it is. And you get that shot of adrenaline and that's basically what's happening. You know, they're 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 putting you into that state. Um, and like I said, I mean, it is a crapshoot because maybe you don't have kids, you know, maybe you realize this is your kid sitting next to you. So most of the calls they make are not successful. And then for the for the calls that are not successful, I mean, for somebody who doesn't have kids who thinks, oh, this is just some crank caller, is there anything that the community at large can do to either help law enforcement or help the FBI and Justice Department try to figure out how to how to break these things? Yeah, I mean, if you were to receive one of these calls, I mean, certainly to write the number down and then turn it over to the the appropriate authorities. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, these a lot of the numbers are can be spoofed as well. So. Um, but really, they're just trying to raise awareness because now I think just like an average person won't respond to those emails from Nigeria asking you for yeah. money. You kind of know that, and I and hopefully this public education will help remedy this. Yeah, I mean, I look for me. I'm the person who, when I get an email from my bank saying, "Hey, you're in overdraft," I think, "Oh, this is this. You know, they're just this is somebody trying to crack my yeah. bank." And then it turns yeah. out, no, I really am in overdraft, and so I'm sort of erring on that side. But I can also imagine there are certain people out there who, yeah. you know, the moment they Fear that something bad has happened in their life, they will sort of jump in and it's yeah. hard to persuade them. Yeah, it seems like a numbers game. Well, do the FBI, the law enforcement, do they fear that this is getting worse? I mean, where does law enforcement feel that they are in terms of uh, terms of keeping up with this? You know, um, they they did manage to catch some of the kind of kingpins behind this, and they are, um, you know, and and they're all facing their um, their own sentencing. But um, yeah, I mean, really now they're they're operating on a public awareness level. I'm just trying to get the message out because it, it it's it is one of these things that you can't quite stop. And for uh, for families who unfortunately have had to had to deal with real kidnappings or these families that feel the shame of falling for a fake one, are there any sort of support organizations or groups that they can go to? Uh, is there much of a community uh, of families that have to deal with this sort of stuff? Um, I don't know about the victims of it, but that is I mean, you bring up a good point because actually, you know, with the FBI, what they say is that most of these crimes go unreported. Mm. Um, so a lot of people aren't reaching out and maybe not even understanding that um, they're not alone in this. Mm. Well, it is a um, frightening story, and uh, I'm so sorry, David, to have your own sort of personal connection to this stuff of what you and your family went through. But I appreciate um, the work that you've Thanks. done. It's David Kushner. He's a contributor for Insider. And again, the scam is people call, and it sounds like it's your child's voice, and they say that suddenly somebody gets on the phone and says, "Okay, you need to deliver us some money." Um, and again, as David was pointing out, the FBI are suggesting the best thing you can do is to just immediately hang up. David Kushner, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. And that'll do it for this edition of the conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. 
Thanks for joining us.